This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. everybody to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Cyril with Insider Perks. Here as always with nobody who's here as always except Nate. So I don't know if I can even say that this week. Kara says, Maria, my co-host is missing. She's in a board meeting for RBDA of Alberta. And our other recurring guests are MIA too. Sean Vildrain. Hopefully we will have him here next month, but he just closed on another new Jellystone property. So congratulations to him. He's needing to focus his attention efforts there. We're hopefully... Joe Dumeg is coming from At My Community and Duncan Winship from Papoose Ponds. They didn't tell us they weren't coming, so maybe they're just a couple minutes late. We will see if those things happen. But we're excited to have a couple of special guests here. So we've got plenty of topical information to, to cover here. We've got Robert Thompson, who owns a campground in Tennessee. We've got John Griffiths, who's going to talk to us about some really cool culinary options for glamping, campground resorts, things like that. And we've got Darvin. I, like, I should look at my notes here, right, before I start the campground. Darvin's from Pinnacle Lifestyles, NBC. They own seven campgrounds. So we're going to talk to us a little bit about that, some of the ownership differences maybe between Canada and the United States, with some of the experiences he's run into and things of that nature. So where do we want to start, guys? What's, what's come across your desk here recently? Anything, Nate, that you feel is of utmost importance, or should we just dive into the special guests and let them talk about themselves? Let's dive into the special guests. I think we're all probably pretty excited as we get closer and closer to Memorial Day and the launch of kind of the heart of the camping season. But I'd love to hear what everybody else has to say and has on their mind. All right, so summer cookouts, food. Let's start there. Is that a good? Is that a good segue or transition? So let's start with John. So John and I think cross paths through a LinkedIn post, right? Where I put out there, if you don't know me, if you're not a connection with me, just look at a, a time with me and tell me what you do. I'd love to learn about it. So John, I think booked one of those appointments, and he was telling me he has he's got a background as a chef. Which please, John, explain by all means, and then just tell us a little bit about the company that you started here. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. It's great to, to meet all of you and that's the opportunity to kind of tell a little bit about the story we have with the Outbound Kitchen. I'm a chef by trade. I worked in high-end restaurants for most of my professional career. I've worked in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, spent a lot of time in the Midwest, but I always had a great passion for the outdoors. I love to rock climb, mountaineer, snowboarding, backpacking. I've always been very active in the outdoor space. And that's what kind of brought me to California originally. And it was around 2017, I think that I got connected with a writer about an article for how to upscale your cooking and when you're out camping and so forth. There wasn't like on scale. It was just for people who like to spend time in the outdoors. How could they do better cooking? But it ended up being an article in the New York Times food section. And so I was thrust onto the cover of the New York Times food section one weekend. And that just launched a whole flurry of people into my orbit that I quite frankly didn't know existed. And from there, it really just was a side project. It wasn't really anything serious. We worked with REI. We worked with people that made cook stoves for the campgrounds. We worked with people who just wanted content for recipes for their websites. And it really just was something fun on the side. But if you fast forward to the pandemic, at the time, I was culinary director for Restoration Hardware's hospitality division, which was luxury platform for a multi-billion dollar lifestyle brand. And we were going through incredible massive growth and then the pandemic hammock and all that 
all of that have came to a screeching, a screeching halt. And like a lot of people, I was thrust out on my own. And my partner and I had spent that summer traveling. We went to Zion, Price, we went to Grand Canyon. We spent that whole time just in the outdoor space, avoiding people like we, we could have been. And we visited a number of these camping spots along the way. We camped a lot on our own, but we were visiting these spots in, outside of Zion. And people were coming up to us, hey, where did you get the food? We don't know where to go get food. This is fantastic, but we were hungry. And something popped in the back of my head. I was like, there's something to this. There's a lot of people here. and They're driving nice cars and they're staying at a nice facility and they don't know what to do about meals every day. They had to go another year or two before anything really connected. For me. So I started consulting as the pandemic wore on and a lot of colleagues reached out to me across the country, but they weren't in Chicago or San Francisco anymore. They were, they were in Jackson, they were in Aspen, they were in these smaller towns and they relocated. And so that just put us even closer in proximity to all of these glamping and destination hospitality models. And we've been continuing to consult since then in that platform. So we still do a lot of restaurant work. Um, that's a lot of where the 25 years of our experience is, but we've really pushed hard over the last year into glamping and destination hospitality as the next growth phase for us. We see a lot of opportunity out there. Operators just, food and beverage got a bad reputation. It is incredibly labor intensive. And it does have a pretty high failure rate overall, but with the right expertise and knowledge, you can stem off a lot of those kind of early stage challenges and you can produce something that's really efficient and pretty profitable overall. So that's what we are and what we do now. So give us some clarity on, give us a couple of examples, right? Because for, if you're dealing with glamping is obviously a little bit different given that it's newer to the space. And I don't want to say tends to skew more luxury, but a lot of the people we hear about skew more luxury, right? But campgrounds have a wide variety of food that they might offer, right? From the snack bar to the little prepackaged Nestle bars and candy in the store to hot dogs or cookies and things like that to food delivery services. So give us an example of some of the kinds of things that you've built and why you feel they are separated or stand apart from those kind of traditional campground offerings. Sure. There's no doubt that our, our business model tends to skew towards acting on luxury markets. Like we're definitely kind of mid range and above. That's where we're able to offer distinction. There's a lot of concessionaires that are in those spaces for larger scale campgrounds that will be perfectly successful in that model. What we do is really to try and work and build connection with local communities and local operators. So we do three basic areas of the market that we kind of service. The first is retail, which is a lot of what you'll see like the auto camps of the world where they, they have a kind of high-end retail operation. They'll do a little bit of packaged food. We develop the relationship with third-party operators with them in the region and help them develop that food and beverage model. They can be dropped off, retailed, packaged for guests to pick up or pre-ordered. And sometimes have very limited beverage offerings as well. And that can be great. And it's a convenience model for operators that are pretty close to a urban location of some size. You can, it doesn't have to be very auto camps down in Joshua Tree. It's not too, not too close to anything other than Palm Strange an hour away. The second model is what we consider like a third, a third party origination or offset origination. And that's more of like experiential. That's where we're, we work with more like a chef or a catering company that would come in and offer a meal on site for the, for the guests for a certain number of days, all pre-ordered. And we think that's where it starts to get really special and authentic. People really want something when they're going to these higher end destinations that is immersive, it's authentic, it connects them to the, lo to the locality more. They don't want to go to, you can go anywhere to a hotel now in great luxury destinations 
You can be in the wilderness. You can be in the wild. You can have all those things at your fingertips inside of the lodge. So people want something that's a little more authentic. They want the food and beverage to also build on that and not be just a hamburger or a hot dog that they came in on a truck frozen three weeks ago. And the third level is where you get into more of the full service operation, which is essentially like building a restaurant at one of these locations. And those tend to be pretty simple. They're unique offerings, but we don't need to be over overwrought with the complexity of it. These things can be built in operations that actually use clove domes or tents of the actual dining room. So you're not having to build a full lodge structure. You build just enough to house the kitchen and the service spaces. And then you can actually build something that's really similar to whatever the accommodations are on your property. Do you have a sense of, or any data of how this can potentially, and obviously every campground is different based on your location and what you're offering and what your type of clientele are, but do you have a sense in general of how this, your three options here can impact revenue at a campground or a glamping resort to the positive? Because traditionally, I think you hear that restaurants tend to operate at lower margins. Yeah, we see it is true that they operate somewhat at lower margins, but that depends on the scale and scope of the offerings that you try to develop. So if you're looking at a restaurant in a city that might offer breakfast and lunch and they're open for 12 hours a day, but people really only come in and eat between 11 and one and six and nine, there's a lot of dead time that you would be paying your overhead. You'd be paying staff that, that are un, unefficient. So we tend to only have at the higher end, we tend to almost only operate the dinner programs. And then we build in grab and go programs for the breakfast and lunch period. So people can pick up a breakfast or pick up a lunch. And sometimes that can be pre-ordered as well. The retail models, all this stuff we do is really efficient and we tend to see revenue positively on all of them within a year of operation. So the retail model tends to, that we have, and our data does skew to the high end, but we see about five to 10% of ADR in retail beverage models. So people are spending, if they spend $300 on, on the accommodation, then we see about five to 10% of that spend daily in food and beverage on a retail level. And we see up to 20 to 30% when you get into the a full service model. So people are looking for that. And again, there is that conversation with a few people and it's, which is causative or is it corollary? Do you build a restaurant and then people charge and charge more for their ADR? Or is it people expect more when they come to these luxury destinations and they need that? And I don't know what the answer is. We've done some projects where it's a new construction with ADR or with the restaurant going in at the outset. And then sometimes people reach out and they've got the established location and they want to build that next level of offering for their guests. It can go both ways. All right. So I'm completely out of smart questions now, but the good thing is, is that we have a campground owner show here. So Nate, Darvin, Robert, do you guys, if you were to ever consider food and beverage service at your park, pick apart John's offering. Like, what would you need to know? What would it have to do? What would it have to, what would make economical sense to you from an ADR perspective, revenue standpoint for you to consider something like this? Do you have any questions for him? Yeah, I'd, I'd want to know, I guess, what you suggest. Like one of our resorts, we have a full restaurant and the other resorts, we've got stores. So we're not really serving. So how do you start? What would you recommend to get going? And what kind of food is in highest demand? Without so giving away any secrets, like, right? Now we can't, like, at some point, <laughs> you're going to have to give the man a little bit of money. But yeah, generically speaking, right, John, what you can tell us. It really depends. There's a lot of factors that go into developing food and beverage in, in 
these destination locations. And it has to do with their proximity to an urban center where you can get deliveries, what kind of deliveries are available to you, what kind of vendors are available, what type of offerings are working for your guests right now, what is their demand seem to be. The shift from retail to full service is like that big leap. So some operators to take the next and maybe build in a, a minimal kitchen development and then do like seasonal dinners during the warm weather and try and offer like a local chef to come in see what that demand is before you start to build a restaurant and staff it fully. So that's like the, the entry point, I guess you'd say. As far as the caliber of food, it just depends on where your operation is in kind of the market segment, what you're trying to appeal to with customers. We definitely focus on, like I said, authentic locality. We want, we want people um, to come to these locations and be no feedback uh, here. I don't know what's wrong with a little feedback here. I don't know what's wrong with feedback over here. But that's, that's all right. Uh, while we, let me mute you for, for a second, second here. Let me figure, figure it out. It out. So, we don't, so we don't have to back. back. Is it me? Is it me? Or? Is it still like you, Brian? You, Brian? And me. And me. I still hear an echo, so I don't know if it's me or not. But okay. Does that answer your question, Darvin? Do you have? Yeah, I, I think so. We we were contemplating adding pizza ovens at different places because our one restaurant's doing really well with that. And people already have barbecues, so what's different that they don't necessarily have when they're camping? That I think is the core crux of the issue, right? So we talked about the obviously the offerings in the food stores for many campgrounds. We talked about like Joe and I know right from working with a lot of and welcome Joe by the way. Joe and I know from working with a lot of campgrounds out here in the States, especially on the East Coast, that there's Hunt Brothers Pizza, for example, that's very mm -hmm. popular in a lot of the campgrounds, and that's a very high margin business. And that works well for a lot of campgrounds, but maybe if you skew toward the luxury end, you want to create a higher quality pizza product or a higher quality local product with a local vendor or something like that. And so where is what we're trying to, I think, figure out what interests me, and maybe it doesn't interest you guys, but um, if it does, please speak up, Nate, Darwin, Robert. Where is that line? Where, how do I analyze my campground guest and decide is the frozen pizzas from the grocery store good enough in my store? Is the Hunt Brothers the step up to that? Is that enough? Or do I need to go beyond that? Or not even need to go, do I want to go because I have a possibility to enhance my revenue even further? Yeah, I think maybe building on your question, Brian, John, as you talk about how you approach this, we've got varying degrees of food service, but we've honestly steered away from any properties that have full service restaurants. So that it tends to be more on the retail kind of packaged side of things. I'd love to hear your process to, to build on Brian's question, how you go into a particular park and look at the location, the guest profile, the existing infrastructure, and what's the process to assess that and come back with maybe where on that spectrum are those three different levels that you tend to operate where you would recommend a park kind of gravitates towards, at least as a first step. Now we're getting into the nitty gritty. So yeah, we go through a process exactly what you said. It's hard to just to answer the question too directly, but when you do have a proximity to a certain urban location, we just go through and we analyze what kind of options are available to you. We've always got to have a lot of feedback from the operator on what their guests are buying currently, if they have that retail location, what the demand might be. But once you get over 20 sites, we tend to see that's like the bottom end for doing a food service, a full service, I'm sorry, full service, food service operation. So when you're above that level and you've got steady, high quality occupancy and you're above $150 in ADR, 
that's when we tend to see really good success with full service hospitality. If you're much larger and a lower ADR, that also works. It just means you're going to be more of a, a more casual operation. The ADR really has been an interesting metric for us and in, in using to determine where we want to be in menu price, et cetera. So we see people when then we get full service operations tend to use it pretty consistently. It's one of those things where you do get a little bit of, if you build it, they will come. And as you get higher up at the ADR level, you just see more and more people are depending on that location to have food and beverage for them available. There's just a better expectation. It's usually there might be a, a paradox there, right? Because some of those locations, like you talked about Bryce and some other spots earlier, are relatively removed from being near an urban center like that. And I would think maybe people are even more dependent on that type of a location, having a food service to, to tap into while they're, while they can't go into this local town or whatnot to get something to eat also. You see that kind of that, that dilemma yeah. as well. There's like a Goldilocks though. When That's you're far enough away from the city that people can't buy then to get a convenient meal. And then as long as you're not like so remote that it takes three hours for a caterer to get into you. Like that's where you start to see really good success. If you're trying to build something that's experiential and high quality, because people are just, they're there, there's the gravity to stay there. They may not travel. They're going to have to travel somewhere to do their activities for the day. And they don't want to come back, maybe get refreshed and then drive back out into a different location for a dinner. So that's when we start to see when you're in that kind of zone and then you have quality ADR and good occupancy. Then you start to see really good success rates with full service. And that could be, it doesn't have to be necessarily full service. You could do the third party origination, but you just have to be close enough to where those operators are going to be in order to get there conveniently, because you have a lot of day-to-day overhead for those operators because they're driving Mm -hmm. in with their staff every day to see you and they don't have anything there to work with. So it's a lot more intensive on their part. So you Mm -hmm. tend to see actually higher per person averages for the dinner meals in that scenario. But you also don't have the overhead as an operator of having built a restaurant. There's lots of things to consider. Like it's not an easy cut and dry answer, but once you get to a certain level of occupancy, you've got good ADR and you're in that zone where you're not too far, not too close from a quality city center, you can be really successful. And Zion's a great example because it's really having a moment right now in, in that kind of rampy community. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of requests and a lot of projects that are in the pipeline down there. And that's exactly like, in that sweet spot. St. George is like about an hour away Mm -hmm. and you've got these smaller towns like Springdale that have popped up at the entrance of Zion and they've got a lot of, a little bit of community and food service workers available. And so then we go in and we work with these locations and we develop relationships with third-party vendors. A lot of these operators though are operating for the masses. And so they're not quite dialed into that higher end experience and quality programming. And so that's where we help manage that. We help develop that relationship we have an R&D team here in the Bay Area that works on the menu writing and development so that we can go into these locations and deliver a fully operational playbook of how to run these full service or partial service operations and do it with the talent pool that you have in the market that you're in. Well, that totally makes sense. I'm a recovering consultant myself. And so, I mean, that, it sounds there's an additional like planning, discovery, analysis phase that comes back with recommendations for that market, that campground, the location, et cetera. I'd be interested to learn more about that maybe separately from this, from the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like, all of it's going to require analysis of your audience and all this. Really the only thing that doesn't would be like a food truck that does whiskey, craft beer, ice cream, and pizza. 
<laughs> Everyone's coming to that, right? I was just saying that the pizza conversation is near and dear to my heart because I'm a rock climber. And so I go to Yosemite like every chance I get. And I still love the pizza diet there. There's this place, it's like right at the village and it is like by far the busiest food service outlet they have. And it's terrible pizza, like in my professional opinion, but I still yeah. go there every it single matter. Doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. All right, let's switch tactics for a minute because I can <laughs> talk about food all show. Well, I have a quick question. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I wasn't sure, and you might've covered this before I was on, mentioning your catering to more luxury type places. Do you do long-term at all? Or does, it, does that not fit your model for a long-term luxury resort, a class A motor coach type resort in India or in Southern Florida? We haven't done motor coach only operations, but that would, I don't think that would be any different. A lot of it is just the people that are experiencing those operations. Like they're the same consumer in a lot of ways. So it may be different in just the analysis of what the recommendations might be, but I think there's still a lot of opportunity. And we also do, as far as long-term, God thought you were maybe talking about like management. We do management program. So we will help operators. That's something new for us going into this next year is we're trying to make it easier. So we're also working on management programming to help actually operate these food service locations once we get them up and running. Because we feel like it's also one of those things where they, the operator just doesn't have the experience or the bandwidth a lot of times to or the staff. manage the staffing and, yeah. and all of those. Restaurants are, they are intensive. And so you got to make sure that you've got the capability on site to deal with those staffing or delivery issues, things like that. Yeah, when I refer to long-term, I mean long-term robots that they announced okay. yesterday to flip to the, make the chef and all that. Kind oh, Alon's onto something there. again. I think I saw. Yeah, he's, yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't know. There's actually there's a lot of robotic food service coming down the pipe. I've seen a lot mm -hmm. of it in the Bay Area long before the pandemic, so I'm sure it's progressing really quickly. Okay, let's switch. We got to cut off. I got to cut you off, Joe. What? One more question. One more question for John. Yeah. One more question. So I would love to experience one of the kind of one of your restaurants in situ do you have a favorite or one of the places that you would recommend as a place to check out the fruits of your labor so to speak i'll be down we've mentioned auto camp their customer i'll be in joshua tree this weekend yeah i'd love to, to actually check out one of your one of your customer sites oh great auto camp's not one of our customers i would probably have to get back to you because depending on when you're going there's a couple cool things we're doing in zion that i okay. think would be really worth checking out yeah okay, great i'll follow up with you separately on that okay sounds good yeah yeah all right. Sorry, I, had, I couldn't resist. No, that's okay. I just, we, I could talk about food forever, especially pizza. But anyway, all right, let's go over to Darwin for a second. Darwin is in Canada. I'm just going to pick on it. Darwin, you get to go second because I'm in Canada. Yeah. I'm not a Canadian, but I'm going to give you preferential treatment anyway. Uh, Darwin runs uh, Pinnacle Lifestyle, fast growing outdoor recreation company. I heard you before the show, you own seven properties. So tell us a little bit about Pinnacle and what you guys are doing in the industry. Yeah, I'm also based out of Calgary, Alberta, in Edmonton today. My if background. You're based out, I'm sorry, if you're based out of Calgary, we got to go get a beer sometime. There's we do. Yeah, I wrote that down. I got. I didn't know you were here either. Definitely want to connect. But yeah, I love the industry. My background's more in the Pinnacle Wealth Broker side. I started an investment dealer coast to coast. We got financial advisors that raise capital for private companies. And so that's what I've been doing for most of the last 17 years. But a few years ago, uh, we were looking at starting Pinnacle Lifestyles, which was actually going to be properties in the Caribbean. And then with COVID hit, we had some, one of our analysts identify a property that was in Alberta and that was a campground. And my business partner, uh, Tom Locke, this is thesis when he's doing his master's in finance and in campgrounds. And so we started talking about it. So this is a great business for an investment. I was looking for a personal investment. So I bought the first one myself that was in Edson close to the wildfires that we have here today. 
and, and it was quite a big success. We did a lot of renovations on it and turned it into a pretty vibrant campground from a, from a little bit more of a quieter, more sleepy campground that hadn't had any love put into it for quite a, quite some time. So then we started investment fund with Pinnacle Wealth Brokers from an investment standpoint, like we had spent the last 17 years raising money for REITs, car washes, storage facilities. And so we raised over a billion dollars just from retail investors on those kind of projects. And we saw what worked and what didn't work and we're big on governance and protecting investors. And we put together some offering documents and we did a fund and we bought some properties. Our, for our first fund that we did with retail investors was Revelstoke in British Columbia and then Sycamuse and they were KOA campgrounds in British Columbia. I think there was only four KOA campgrounds. So yeah, they're so very light in the West coast of Canada. Pretty light. So very similar and they fit good in the same fund because they were similar property, similar properties. They did pancake breakfast on, on the Saturdays and they had small KOA cabins and they had mm. a lot of full service sites, but they also had camping sites, but really we look for world-class destinations and, and our main focus is along the Trans-Canada Highway number one. So if you are flying into Calgary or Vancouver, you're taking the road to go to the other city and you're, you drive right by a lot of our properties. So we have five properties in, in that region. Golden is one that we're developing a brand new campground on. We got uh, 200 acres along the river it's and then river. Yeah, it's beautiful uh, Columbia, right on the Columbia River and the Waitabit Creek. So we actually own on both sides of both the creek and the river. So that would be a, a gorgeous spot for glamping. We're gonna put some glamping, some RV sites and some cabin sites on that property. And then in the shoe shops where I spend my summers, beautiful lakes, pristine. You can see 30, 40 feet. Lake, down. okay. I'm sorry. I got to stop you again. This is ridiculous. My girlfriend has a cabin on Lake Shushwap. Her parents do. Yeah. We spend like a month up there every summer too. So paradise. Yeah. yeah. Oh. yeah can't get enough of it. But as in Canada, we don't have, we don't have that all year long. So we got to make the best of our summers. July and August yes. is where you make the money. Kids are out of school and, and that's, it's longer seasons in the shoe shops. So you can in the lake and boating now because the water is already warm enough. So you got really from May 1st to September 30th. And that's when our campgrounds are typically open, but we're converting ours to be more attractive in the winter time as well and doing deep services because we're in a skiing paradise, like Revelstoke, that mountain is the tallest vertical of any yeah. ski hill in North America. And we're right in town in Revelstoke there. So we're moving and converting half of that campground to selling our RV and cabin lots to people that want to just leave their RV there or build a cabin. And we're just moving into that for half of that campground and we'll keep the other half as our nightly rentals. And then we have some levels of service and stuff for food at our store. And then we're doing something very similar down the road at Sycamus. It's also a sledders paradise. Sycamus, I think is number one in North America for sledders. It's also the houseboat capital of Canada. And so very good destination for winter and for summers. And then our other property. I didn't know the sledders thing, but where are you at on Chishwa? Where's the property at? Uh, so we have one, the Sycamore one is before you get into the shoe shop. So right. it's actually in Malacqua, I think 12 minutes before Four. you get into the town of Sycamore. Yeah. And then we have one 10 minutes past Sycamore on Mara Lake. Mara Lake, I, I think is the nicer, smaller lake, the first lake where the river comes in and feeds into the big shoe shop lake. And then we have another one that's called White Lake which would be just elevated above the big shoe shop lake. And it's by Blind Bay, just past Salmon Arm. Okay. That's, that's a top 10 fishing lake for tr rainbow trout in Canada. And so it's, and it's a beautiful boating lake, just crystal. So well, we'll have, to come, have to come visit this summer. We'll do a live show from one of your parks or something. Perfect. Anyway, so. Yeah, I'd love that.
Yeah. I grew up as a, on the lake as a competition water skier. I just love being out on the water. See, I never did that. My girlfriend did, and she makes fun of me because I can't water ski or do any of the things. I didn't grow up with a boat. What do you want? Like, I'll break my legs. Yeah. So, I was lucky that way for sure. Once we were 12, my dad said, hey, you guys can, you're old enough now. So we just spent the whole day out on the lake and I uh, had a brother who was a year older. And so pull each other. And of course, all the friends would come together and built our own course and then started a water ski club. But anyways, we have two other properties, Kokanee, Kokanee Springs Golf Resort in the Kootenays. And, and then we're acquiring another one just down the road from that property. So, so I have a question and we asked Nate this the first time he appeared on the show too, right? Darwin, what have you learned from the first acquisition and to now to number seven, right? What is, what has changed for you operationally or strategically or what types of parts you buy or what you feel goes into them or changes? Like what, have, what are some lessons learned for you? I, I guess lots of little things, but our first one was super successful. So I'd say I, le I learned less from that one. What we learned from Kokanee Springs is six hours away and it's probably the nicest spot I've ever been. We've got one of the, the nicest 18 hole golf course I've ever golfed at. And so we knew it was a bit of a challenge because it's about six hours from Calgary and I think it's seven hours from Vancouver. So there's, you have to be close to a big population base and Canada so big and spread out that it is a little, and we're just building our campground on that golf resort. So that location I think is just key, which is why we do focus on the Trans Canada Highway number one. But to make a destination resort, really got to pump extra money into all amenities. So if we're not a golf resort anymore, we're, we're something to everybody. And so we're building a private lake on the resort and we're obviously right on the main lake in the Kootenays. But yeah, I think just be destiny, making it a destination for people to stay at for a longer, if you're farther away. And that's what we're working towards now. Do you so. feel like the, as you encourage people to, and maybe Joe has a question that you can ask too. By the way, if you don't know, Joe develops apps for campgrounds and RV resorts in Canada and the US, but uh, he deals with a lot of people and that's why I'm bringing it up. But as you talk about encouraging people to stay for longer stays, is that something you're focused on? Like just from a resort, I want to come to the resort and I want to offer food and beverage and all the amenities and all the things so you don't leave. Or do you work in combination with some of that, but also I need to be in a Revelstoke with a ski mountain or near a lake that has fishing or whatever it may be, wine country? Yeah, all of our resorts are unique with a different target market, depending on what sport you like and what kind of activities you like. Okay. So, yeah, I would say it's a little bit of both, but really trying to cater to people of all ages at each resort and making sure that there's activities. And then it's a little bit of a concierge service. Realize that some people yeah. are getting to a destination for the first time, so they don't know where the trails are or where the, the rafting companies are. The Revelstoke, we brought in a company to, that does all of that so that they're, they were on site and able to provide those services. But we, we learned that you need really ideal, you need good service providers because that can go both ways. Right. The service has got to be great because they're connected to your brand when you're partnering with mm -hmm. companies like that. Awesome. I have a question, Marvin. Yeah, um, we, like, like you, we've got a number of parks and we work with investors and there's two different roles and skill sets and kind of philosophies, one in which you're dealing with investors and the finance side and the other in which you're dealing with the, uh, the management side and actually the running of the parks. How are you structured across those two disparate but related areas of function? You mean dealing with the conflict of, do you spend the money on this to satisfy one customer, but maybe it's expensive for your investor? Is that well, you yeah, that, but maybe even one level higher is structurally, how do you have that set up within your business? 
okay, yeah, we have an investment fund set up and we got an independent board of directors on our investment fund. And so the executive and the board of directors work on the bigger picture strategic planning. They create a budget and they create a plan on what we're going to do on that side. And then the campgrounds really run totally separate. So we have like our management team, our development team, our marketing team. So all of those run and are paid for based on the budget that's set by the board of directors for the fund. Got it. That makes sense. Thanks. Yeah, it seems to be working pretty good. Happy to Um, talk more about that though. Yeah, I'd love to. Kind of mentioned that each of your properties caters to a different sport. I don't know. I'm sure Brian saw this, but there's a conglomerate in the U.S. called Spacious Skies. Um, just over the past year, they, two or three times they've come out with different tours of their campgrounds that they put out, like go to this one to follow the leaves changing or something like that. But might be a neat thing to do there too is to experience all the different sports that you have amongst your properties. I think. Seems like a neat, a neat thing if they all focus on a different sport. Yeah, you definitely can't follow the weather because it's east to west, unless you want to go toward the rain in Vancouver, which I feel like is not a selling point. But yeah, no, that's a good point. I've seen and I've seen some advertising on certain events happening in the skies. I think there's something big happening around this fall or October where a lot of campgrounds are trying to pre-promote that and get booked up for it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So those kind of things make sense. And we have, we have different clubs that go by a Lamborghini club goes by the Kokanee Springs golf resort every year. So that's what we were talking about last week at our meetings. Hey, we got to reach out to the Lamborghini club now, have them come and stay at our resort and bring their golf clubs. We'll provide them and get them to stay for a few more days and different biker clubs go by, but you're right. The sledders, there's a huge community of sledders, huge community of skiers whitewater rafters and and that's something we haven't really done yet just being an earlier stage in the company has reached out to all these groups but that is mm-hmm. the next stage so i appreciate you bringing that up yeah, yeah you've got a massive opportunity in the fall and winter and you know that already you don't need us to tell you that with the ski yeah letting and mm-hmm. it's huge nate you came up and did some skiing up here didn't you yeah i was up did you go to rebel over a week this winter so i'm gonna hit you up for that information right after this podcast so yeah you got, we got you a customer darvin yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a great, great day. Yeah, I know Rebel Soak's my favorite place to be, really. Sounds fantastic. Summer yeah. and winter. Yeah. You can get a foot of snow a, on an average January, February day, and it's just powder. Oh, it's great tree skiing. Did yeah. you guys have a good season? Oh, we had a terrible season in Lake Louise. I don't ski again, but my girlfriend does. She only got it one time. It just was terrible in Lake Louise this year. She said, yeah, Rebel Stoke. the day she had off. Rebel Stoke was a good year, but you're right. If you come closer to Calgary, uh, uh, closer east, those hills, sunshine and Louise were not as good as average, but the farther you went into interior, BC, the better it was. Silver Star, I skied at Silver Star and they had about mm-hmm. a foot of powder the day I got there. So that's close to our Vera resort, I think 40 minutes away from the Shoetrop area. Okay. Yeah, we definitely have to talk. We did Silver Star and we also did uh, Sun Peaks and just a variety of spots up there. Such good skiing. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Hey, touching right. I think something that Joe mentioned earlier, so you've got these different resorts and we've Played with this idea being somewhat early stage ourselves. We haven't executed on it yet, but have you thought about the idea of doing kind of like portfolio marketing where you put together trips across a couple different locations and market that as a more of a package tour or a way to, to promote your, your suite of properties as a vacation destination in totality, as opposed to just individually? Yeah, you bet. That's again, we're probably at a similar stage as you as we're planning that we had one motor home tour comp 
company that had, I think like 28 or something motorhomes come through and they've been staying at Revelstoke every year and they're staying at other places, yeah. but it's a lot of work for the organizers. We've already brought up to them, Hey, we'll help organize some of yours because we got seven locations that you can go to. There's a ton of groups like that, that would be yeah, good to put a plan together of how many sites and you got to plan in advance because you got to lock off all of those sites that they're going to be right. staying at. And typically our customers want to rebook for a year in advance. If they love their site, they want to book for next year. That's mm -hmm. something you need to plan more than a year in advance. It's interesting how some of that is a low hanging fruit too, right? Because we talk about how convenience wins the day in almost everything, or I do a lot, right? But if you can make it more convenient of those groups, it's so easy because they don't want to do all the legwork and all the research and all the things. And right. yes, there's a group planner and yes, they have a certain quality standard, the type of place they want to go. But if they know they like you at one place, there's a chance they like you at other places. If you can just make it easy on them, boy, the business is this there to take really easily. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole team approach and figuring out, okay, who's going to put the marketing together? Who's going to call all these groups and follow up with them? And the managers at each resort got to say, okay, I'm blocking off these sites. And, but yeah, once you get it going, like that, like you said, low hang fruit, right? That's yeah. Robert, are you there? We can't see you. Yeah, I, I am. I've been having connectivity issues intermittently here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. We can't see you, which is unfortunate, but that's okay. We'll, you'll be able to, you'll be just fine on the podcast. That's audio later that we'll release. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your business, Peter Falls Campground? Sure. We're in our second full season. We're between Nashville and Chattanooga in a rural area adjacent to the newest state park in Tennessee, which is known for its waterfalls and vistas. Unlike our other guests, having been an entrepreneur for a few decades, I have no desire to grow and franchise and get lots of other campgrounds. This is, we're a 50 site campground. This was my retirement project. It's uh, only, I established it because it's my favorite place to camp and hike in Tennessee. I'm from California and there's a plethora of nature things out there that I enjoyed, but in Tennessee anyway, in the Southeast, this is my favorite. I always loved waterfalls and nature. I live up in Nashville on a houseboat for the last 17 years. And this is, now I get surf and turf, woods and water. We cater to, we're unlike most RV parks, 10 to 15 sites per acre. Makes a lot of financial sense. We have two to three. They're individually hewn out of the raw timber land that I bought two years ago. And each site is different and heavily wooded. And we, we cater to people who love the outdoors. We're far from, we're a mile from the town and has one and a half restaurants and one gas station. There's not a, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of food service. We're looking at doing some kind of food truck or some kind of thing for our work campers as well as our campers, but it's 50 sites. We have 25 RV sites eight glamping sites and 17 tent sites. And uh, it's been a little bit more of a challenge. Actually, serendipitously, I wasn't going to start a campground. I wanted to build a tiny home community for veterans. Uh, that's tiny okay. homes for heroes. And uh, due to the regulatory and uh, political slash economic environment, we were not able to uh, do that. And we actually had to move into a campground and in, instead of the tiny home community aspect. But uh, it's uh, it's been really well. And we were booked out completely by the first year of our business. It's a very popular nature destination. Uh, you can walk from your campsite to three waterfalls in less than a half a mile. I'm enjoying it. And uh, by and large, I love the camping community. I always loved 
hiking and uh, that's why I did this. Although it's turned into be a bit of a, more of a challenge than I anticipated, which is pretty much typical of my other entrepreneur endeavor. <laughs> jump in first and figure it out later. And that certainly has been much to the consternation of my wife and to the amusement of my children in this little project in my later life here. So what, this is going to be my next question, right? What are the challenges that you run into and what have you overcome and have still yet to overcome? Well, 95% of the camping community are, are beautiful, considerate of the environment and each other. That's the 5%. That's always going to be a challenge in any kind of customer facing business. We did just have a complete camp takeover of 169 people that were there for nine nine days celebrate festival, Passover festival there. And we had 109 children and 169 people total weekend. When we have a long weekend with campers, it's one level of trash to deal with and just logistics. But that many people all crowded around one little area was, we all chipped in, but it was definitely a challenge, particularly to keep everything as clean and neat and serviced as we would like. Although I tell you that to me, the reward of it was to see 109 children, 106 children rather for nine days with never a electronic device in their hand. They were enjoying the woods, our play area, our dog park and our activity center. And they just were running wild in the woods, enjoying themselves being kids in a non-electronic way. And that's to me, that's the payoff is, is, is having campers, people who have an opportunity to get away from the city and, and get a little retreat in nature and connect with each other and connect with nature, connect with themselves. And that's really why we're in business, <laughs> period. I think that honestly, like I'm not a campground owner, you guys can all speak to it for yourselves, but I think that's honestly one of the big reasons people do it. And you're willing to sacrifice some of the extra stress maybe that comes from being a campground owner versus an accountant or someone who runs a sandwich shop because you're bringing that kind of extra joy to someone's life. Yeah, for us, it's been that way. As far as the other challenges, trying to keep a good, we're, yeah. we lost him. I think right. To say he's in a rural area, ironically. <laughs> yeah. We now know how important Wi-Fi is at campgrounds in case anyone needed a reminder. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully he'll be, he'll pop back on. But yeah, I think I, it, it's really interesting. Like, I'm a sucker for waterfalls. And so it sounds like he's got a great area. It's honestly the reason I moved up to Calgary and Darwin knows this, right? We're 45 minutes from, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of waterfalls that are probably there that, you know, I would be able to explore in 10 lifetimes, but Tennessee is great for that. I've driven through that many mm -hmm. times. Super, right, large, super large lots. I was going to ask him like, how, what, how, how does he serve? Serve? Sorry, he is. And we can hear him. Or see him. him. Oh, the miracle of electronics. I'm sorry. I've missed the last. 20 seconds and zapped out here. We're actually on my on vacation. My wife and I are in Alabama on vacation, the first in a couple of years. That, actually, what's ironic is Nashville does not have Google Fiber. Out in the middle of the country, we have one gigabyte speed Google Fiber in our campground. So. I don't know. Have you tried Starlink? Pardon? Have you tried Starlink? Well, like I said, we got Google. No, oh, you mean down here in far in our vacation? Oh, no, I was no, thinking you, know, you, you got fiber, fiber on your properties? properties. No, yeah, we have Google Fiber at our whole campground. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So we get a lot of remote workers that move to the area, got jobs, and so they're able to work 
work remote in the middle of the wilderness. Darvin, I missed your question. I'm sorry. I need to make such large lots. Yeah. Can you still hear me? Okay. Yeah, the obviously being in a rural area is a little bit different price strategy. Although to tell you the truth, we built this during COVID. Prices on everything was going up weekly. And uh, since we moved into the area, the property prices have gone up two or three hundred percent. So yeah, we got in because it was just a beginning area, and now every, everybody's catching on to it. The state just authorized a hundred and ten million dollar expansion project that's basically in our backyard. So we're going to benefit from that as well. But locals, I don't know if any of you, if you build new campgrounds, but there's always, I ran into this in my other businesses, particularly in California, I started in a movie studios and people in the, people in the area always have mixed feelings about development. And so we came in and we tried our best to earn the respect and uh, of the community by giving back uh, we built town didn't even have a website i built it for them we did road improvement projects got involved with city council and all those kind of things to try to basically show them that the hospitality business and what we were going to do was going to contribute to the community certainly the tax base but also not be a bring a bunch of outsiders into the land and rep mess up their community yeah, I think those are valid. And Robert, Robert, I'm just because I think it's you that's causing the echo, but I'll unmute you if you want to talk. It's just coming from your speakers, I think. But uh, it's interesting how some of those concerns, and we don't have enough time to discuss them now. Maybe that's another show, but just they have valid concerns, right? About different people and different outside groups coming to their communities. It's just a lack of knowledge. But I know Arvik has, Arvik works on that. KOA, I'm sure, works on that to a certain extent. And so it's important for us to be cognizant of that, right? And understand that there are different perceptions that we want to build as fast as we can and renovate. And we know we're doing good things and have good intentions, but we need to communicate that with those communities. I tried you again, Robert. I don't know if that fixed it. I can't hear you now, but the echo's gone. So what else? We have seven minutes left. Joe, you haven't been on in a couple months, I think. Anything new that's come across your desk that you feel we should pay attention to? Not in particular. I'm living in an RV right now, but I'm not traveling to camp. <laughs> was... like a, that's a giant whiteboard for an RV and a nice ceiling. Yes, I'm living half out of an RV. So oh, we, no. uh, okay. we were supposed to go on a two-month road out west this summer, but due to some personal reasons, we had to stay home. But we're in the middle of a kitchen renovation. That's, why, that's one of the reasons we were going to be gone for two months. And so our kitchen and like main living area is, is in our motorhome. So unfortunately we get all the, the, we lose all the joy of being in a campground with all of the not joy of living in any space. <laughs> so I have a question, Joe. One of the things that we've played around with a little bit, we haven't really progressed on super, super far again, earlier stage, like we were talking about earlier is the evolution or kind of the advent of AR on these different campgrounds or augmented reality. So doing stuff like scavenger hunts and kind of adding another dimension of interaction for kids as much as to Robert's point, I love seeing my kids in particular, but kids in general off their device. Mm -hmm. That's a tool that can be used to engage them while they're on site. Have you seen a lot of, what's your perspective on, on that as on-premise augmented or supplemented experiences? So that's actually my, our stance on it is that our goal is to try to get information to campers as quickly and easily as possible while they're on site. So they're not spending the time on their phone. They're going to have it. They're going to use it. 
But the goal is to, the goal of our product isn't to play a game on there. We do have scavenger hunts, but what we do for our scavenger hunts is allow the campground to build their own to go around the property. Go and take a picture of this. Go and answer this question that we've put on and go over here and do that. So they entertain the property is entertaining them and not not trying to build a game on the phone. I don't think that is very useful. There are places that I think AR will become, is useful. We haven't implemented it yet in terms of finding one of the things that we think about and can work offline because we, anything we do, we have to make sure that we can try to make it work offline. Obviously certain things like store sales, we can't do that. But in terms of wayfinding, we have some customers that are actually in the up near Calgary, between Calgary and Edmonton, that there's a bunch of mountain head, mountain trails, and there's no cell service there, but it would be really neat for them to be able to see, okay, where's the nearest trail from this one? You know, if I want to go and find a lot, we don't have any cell service. And one of the cool things that we want to do is start where they can just go and look and see those waypoints that are recommended to them by the resort or, and in this particular case, it's a chamber of commerce in Rocky Mountain House. I will say this too. Go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry, finish. Yeah, you're good. I was just going to say, I'll stick up for what Joe and I've had these conversations about AR for years. And I think we're both on mm -hmm. the same kind of mindset, but even more so now that we've had, and I can't go a show without mentioning AI, but there's a really good, there's a really good Ted talk I watched about a week ago from a guy who's starting a company called Human, Humane or Human, but he showed off this really cool device and I won't get into what the device is, but and Nate, you we help you with marketing, right? We can do. We can have this conversation about AR and VR offline if you want, and I'm happy to expand upon it. But I think the future is very screenless. And I think AI is going to enable that a lot of places. And so while I think we all want what Robert mentioned to get people off their devices as much as possible, mm -hmm. while also keeping them engaged with activities. And I think there's a way to do that without a screen. And I would have told you, I would have told you 10, like the same thing. And Joe and I have had these conversations a year, two, three ago. And I don't think AR has really a place in the apps, but I would have told you last year that I still think AR is a future of some capacity, whether it's for, but I don't think that anymore. I'm not sure I believe that anymore. I, th I think that screenless technology is going to be absolutely amazing for campgrounds and AI is what's going to bring it here. That's interesting. Look, a lot of the trends in reading that I've done a lot of it through modern campground is more and more campgrounds seem to be adding themed weekends as an example. So there's a schedule of activities that are screenless to your point, or maybe not supplemented by AI, but that's starting to be more and more common. I know that like Spacious Skies team is doing that and Jellystone is doing that. It's becoming more and more prominent across a lot of kind of multi-park owners. Yeah, I think there's tons and tons of ways, and Joe knows more than I do, right? With all the campgrounds he does and the activities he lists, but there's tons and tons of ways to entertain people without screens. And they're only going to expand as we go right. into the future. So, yeah. And so with that, like kind of the goals of ours is making sure people know when and which activities they want to attend so that they're not missing their activity list or can't find it on the map because they have a paper map that their kids ripped up or they have a paper map that it's named something different than what's on the activity list. Things that we've gone through when we've been traveling with our children. That, Like I said, that's our goal. We definitely don't want to be providing an app where people are just sitting, staring at their phone the whole time. Because <laughs> no. otherwise it's the purpose of camping. I guess unless you're at like a, it's people that want to work from home or something that are, that are choosing to work at campgrounds, but still that's not our goal. Yeah. It makes sense. All right. We've got a minute left. Any final parting thoughts? Everyone? 
I thought it was super valuable. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for Brian. You're absolutely welcome. So John, any parting thoughts? Where can they get more about about your company? www.outboundkitchen.com. Outboundkitchen.com. So if you're interested in talking to John or anything like that, please feel free to reach out to him. Darvin, what's Pinnacle's website where we can check out some of your properties? PinnacleLifestyles.ca. PinnacleLifestyles.ca. Nate is KCN Campgrounds. Yep, that's right. Check out the AIR on KCN Campgrounds. Mm-hmm. I don't know who did it, but it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and then Robert, where can they check out more about your campground? Oh, I'm sorry. You're muted. Let me unmute you. Greeterfalls.com. Life guy, I'm greeting you. Greeterfalls.com. Awesome. And it's also the hashtag for pretty much any social media. Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. And I guess we might as well let you do it, Joe, right? Anyway, they already probably know, but at mycommunity.com. <laughs> yep. At mycommunity.com. All right. Thank you guys. I really appreciate you all joining us. I mean, it was great to learn about Pinnacle Lifestyle. Definitely hit me up. Like I'd love to go get a beer or a coffee or whatever you're into, right? Or we'll do that. With shoe swap because of our schedules and we'll do that. John, appreciate you being here talking to us about uh, some of that stuff fascinates me, right? Some of the new mm-hmm. innovations and the ways that people can level up with ADR. And so I'm excited to keep bringing those topics to the show. Nate, as always, thanks for being here. Joe, as always, thanks for being here. Robert, someday I'll make it down to Tennessee and check out, like, I love waterfalls. I was telling them why you're disconnected. So appreciate you being here. I think they have a great location. So thank you, Ed, for joining us. And we will see you next week on another episode of MC Fireside Chats. Take care, guys. Thanks. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com. 